Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. That's all. Without further ado, here's Attic Clock. Hello. Wow. Um, this is an extraordinarily lovely time in my professional life. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the ability to be myself um, into this, which decade is it? Um, fourth. Um, and that kind of what, funnily enough, started here in that fiction section. I came here about eight years ago, um, bored with being a Hollywood feature screenwriter. And I walked through the fiction section. I kept picking up books and like reading the first page and not looking to shop. But when I walked out of here, I said, I think I could write a book. I, I could probably write a book. <laughs> so, um, so this is an immense pleasure for me uh, to be here. Uh, so I think what I'll do is talk about a little about the book, read a little bit, and then leave you know, time for us to have a discussion if anybody's interested in doing so. I'm looking out at so many people I love. It's kind of amazing. All right, so Pleasantville. Um, my dad ran for mayor in 2009 of Houston, Texas. Um, it was awful. Um, I see some of his campaign staff here, which is my siblings. Um, it was probably one of the oddest, most painful experiences of my life uh, for many reasons. But I will say this, when I went to go help him, I flew into Houston from a little now, big plantation in Louisiana where, where I was researching the cutting season. And I flew into Houston and I get on my lock for mayor t-shirt and I'm on the ground working and one of my first jobs was to go to Pleasantville. I was to go to a candidate forum there. And I was really to speak for my dad but I was really there to stall because he was stuck in traffic and so the plan was for me to say nice things about him until he could get there. And when we were riding through Pleasantville, it, uh, so 2009 Pleasantville was... Um, you know, a nice middle-class neighborhood, mostly black, some beautiful homes, some empty, some boarded up, and I could not figure out why we were there. Why was every candidate for mayor, city council, congressperson in this little neighborhood figuratively on their knees begging for these people's votes? I did not understand until I learned about the history of Pleasantville, which is what birthed this book. And so I'm going to read a truncated version from the opening, what is essentially the prologue. So, this is election night, Texas 1996. They partied in Pleasantville that night. From Laurentide to Damari Lane, they unscrewed bottle tops, set the needle on a few records, left dinner dishes soaking in the sink. They sat on leather sofas in front of color TVs, hovered over kitchen radios, kept the phone lines hot, passing gossip on percentages and precinct returns on the verge they knew of realizing the dream of their lifetime. They were retired army men, some, grown men who wept openly in front of their TV sets as the numbers started to roll in. 
They were doctors and lawyers, nurses, school teachers and engineers, men and women who had settled here in the years after the Second World War in Pleasantville, a neighborhood that, when it was built in 1949, had been advertised over the city's airwaves and in the pages of the Defender and the Sun as the first of its kind in the nation. A planned community of new homes, spacious and modern in design, and built specifically for Negro families of means and class. A description that belied the rebellious spirit of its first inhabitants, the tenacity of that post-war generation. For yes, they endured the worst of Jim Crow, backs of buses and separate toilets, and yes, they paid their poll taxes, driving or walking for miles each election day, waiting in lines two and three hours long. Yes, they waited, but they also marched. In wingtips and patent leather pumps, crisp fedoras and pinstripe suits, belted dresses and silk stockings, they marched. On City Hall, the school board, even the Department of Public Works, holding out the collective votes of a brand new block as a bargaining chip to politicians previously reluctant to, to consider the needs of the new Negro middle class. And sealing in the process the neighborhood's unexpected political power, which would become legend over the next four decades. And it was hard not to believe that it had all been leading to this. Channels 13 and 11 were already calling the local race, putting Sandy Walcott and Axel Hathorne, a Pleasantville native, in next month's runoff for the mayor's seat. And Houston, Texas, that much closer to getting its first black mayor in its 160-year history. And word was now spreading down the wide, oak and elm-lined streets of Pleasantville that the man himself, their one-time neighbor Axel Hathorne, was coming home to celebrate. From Gellhorn Drive to Silverdale, folks freshened up coffee pots, pulled the good gin from under the sink. They set out ice, punch, cookies, and waited for the doorbell to ring, as they'd been told Axel wanted to knock on doors personally to shake a few hands. The girl, she wasn't invited, but she didn't expect to be. She had played her small part, put in hours on the ground, knocked on some doors, and now what she wanted more than anything was to go home. At the appointed place, the corner of Guinevere and Ledwick, she waited for her ride, her blue cotton t-shirt a thin shell against the damp night air. It was well above 70 degrees when she'd left home this afternoon, and she'd never meant to be gone this long. But she was due a bonus, a little extra cash in her pocket, if she unloaded all the leaflets she'd been given. She was too smart or proud to toss the lot of them into a trash can at the neighborhood community center, as others before her had tried. This job meant more to her than to the other. She knew that. She was six months out of high school with no brighter prospect on her horizon than moving up to the cash register at the Wendy's on OSD. So she pushed herself a little harder, pointedly staying past nightfall, a plan she hadn't thought all the way through, as evidenced by her lack of a decent coat or even a cotton sweater and the fact that she was flat broke after spending what little money she had at a payphone on Market Street. She checked the time on her pager, the one Kenny had bought her when he left for college, promising they'd make it work somehow. Had he called? She scrolled through the phone number stored in the tiny machine. How long would she have to wait out here? It was already coming on 9 o'clock, and she knew her mother would worry. She could picture her now smoking a Newport out the kitchen window, still in her pink nurse's scrubs, glancing every few minutes at the yellow sunflower clock, wondering why her daughter wasn't home yet. 
The girl crossed her skinny arms across her chest. This far to the south, the street lamps in Pleasantville gave out, and she was all too aware that she was standing alone on a dim street corner miles from home with nothing but the low, insistent hum of an idling engine as unwelcome company. He'd been watching her for a few minutes now. The nose of his vehicle pointed east on Guinevere, the body tucked under the low-hanging branches of a willow tree, so that she could make out no more than a man's rough silhouette behind the windshield. His headlights were dark, which is why she hadn't seen him at first. But he was facing in her direction, his engine running, his features wearing an expression she couldn't read in the dark. She couldn't tell the make or the model of the vehicle, but it was the height and width of a van, a truck of some sort. Run. Just run. It was a whisper inside her own skull, her mother's voice actually, calling her home. But she should wait for her ride, shouldn't she? She felt a stab of uncertainty, a panic so sharp it made her eyes water. Everything hinged on this one choice. I should wait for my way out, she thought, still wanting to believe a way out was possible, but already knowing with a creeping certainty that this night had turned on her, that her disappearing had already begun. She knew she'd made a mistake, knew even before she heard the van's door open. Just run. Um, same night. <laughs> I would be remiss not to introduce Jay. Jay Porter stood on his own lonely street corner clear across town. It was late that same night, a little after 11, when he got the call that someone had broken into his office on Brazos Street, south of downtown. He'd hung out a shingle here last year, finally moving out of the cramped office in the strip mall on West Gray, paying cash for this place, um, which was falling apart when he found it, a foreclosure that had been sitting empty for years. The house was a modest Victorian with good bones and an open floor plan and a room upstairs for his law library. It was the kind of house Bernie would have liked to call her own, even more than the rambling suburban three-bedroom ranch they'd settled in a few years after their youngest was born. Jay had refurbished the 87-year-old Victorian himself, as if, it was, as if his wife might yet have the chance to spend slow afternoons on its wraparound porch, as if they might still have a shot at starting over. He half expected to walk through the front yard's wrought iron gate one day and find her sitting there on the white two-seater swing he'd built himself. The house, with its bottomless demands and clamors for his attention, missing doorknobs and broken light fixtures, the floors he'd stripped by hand, had saved, saved his life during the worst of this past year. He thanked it daily for putting tools in his hands, all those long afternoons when he let his practice go to shit. There had been three break-ins in the area since June. They must have come in through a window this time, he thought. When he'd pulled up to the house, the headlights of his Land Cruiser had swept the front porch, lighting up pieces of broken glass. There were shards of it still scattered across the porch's wide slats. Whoever had broken in tonight had, ex had exited the house a different way, or was at this very moment still inside. Jay, who didn't keep guns in his home anymore, not since the kids, had a single registered firearm, and it was right now sitting useless inside a locked box in the bottom drawer of his office desk. Hence his patient vigil across the street, waiting for the cops. There was nothing in that office that he couldn't live without, not a thing in the world he would put before the need to get home to his family in one piece. He wasn't trying to be a hero. 
The Crown Victoria came riding low with its light bar off, its tires crunching loose gravel in the street. The officers pulled to a stop at an, at an angle that brought the front end of their cruiser to rest nearly at Jay's feet at the curb, its headlights hitting him square in the chest. He instinctively raised his hands. Porter, he said, this is my place. The woman was youngish and short. Her hair was slicked back into a tiny nub of a bun. She came out the car first, one hand on the handle of her service weapon, already en route to the front door. You been inside? Jay shook his head, stepping aside to let her pass. He handed her the key to the front door. Crossing the threshold, the woman's partner, too, put a hand on the handle of his pistol. Jay followed them into the house, the soft creak of the pine floors beneath their feet, the only sound in the dark. He felt along the wall for the light switch, the one between the front door and Eddie May's desk. It cut a shaft of light that cut through the center of the room, shadows scattering like startled mice. The younger cop was in motion down the main hall toward the back of the house. Her partner was walking up the stairs. There was the law library up there, plus the conference room. Downstairs, Jay inspected Eddie May's desk, opening and closing drawers. Then he walked down the hall to his own office, the room closest to the back door, which was standing wide open. Must have been the way that got out, he heard behind him. It was the cop with the mustache. I didn't see anything upstairs. His partner, likewise, had nothing to report from the kitchen. She had already holstered her weapon and was reaching for an ink pen. Within 10 minutes, they filled out a full incident report. Jay could see nothing that was missing, not his checkbook, his sterling letter opener, not his collection of LPs and 45s. He had a turntable in here, too, also untouched. He checked both the petty cash and the metal lock box with his thirty-eight revolver, which was, which was right where he'd left it. It took the officers more time to inspect his gun license than it did to fill out their paperwork. Whoever it was, they guessed, maybe the alarm had scared him off. It looked as if someone had simply opened the back door and walked out. Okay, Jay said, shoving his hands in, into the pockets of his slacks. He walked the, the cops to the front steps, zipping his windbreaker. Another dispatch call was coming in. The one with the mustache lifted his radio first, and then the two of them were off. Jay locked the gate behind them, watching as the squad car peeled down Brazos Street, this time flashing its red and blue lights. Back inside, Jay walked to the hall closet to get a broom. The broken window sat just to the side of Eddie May's desk. And if tomorrow's temperature was within even 10 degrees of what it was now, Jay's entire day would consist of listening to a long recitation of the ingredients she would need to buy for a home remedy to fight the bug that was inevitably setting up shop in her throat and lungs. He could picture her shivering, clearing her throat every 15 minutes, and eventually asking for a long lunch so she could hunt down some chicken soup. The thought at this hour actually made him smile. It had been nearly 20 years now, the two of them working together. He'd put her through school, set up a trust fund for her grandkids from the portion of the civil settlements that was Eddie May's cut, back when the money was still rolling in, of course, when he still had more than one client. She was now a certified paralegal, shopped exclusively at Casual Corner, and had narrowed her choices of coiffure down to two wigs, both of a color that occurs in nature. But Eddie May was still Eddie May, and there wasn't a day she didn't think could be better passed over a few beers and an early dominoes game. She was nearing 70 now, stuck in a house full of kids, and aside from one grandson at TSU who worked part-time at a radio shack, the only one with steady employment. She weakly cursed Jay for setting up that dang trust, giving her progeny an excuse to perfect the art of waiting. 
She was one of the few constants in Jay's life, and he'd come to love her for it, the parts of their daily life that he could set his watch by. Jay held the metal dustpan in his left hand. He felt his 46-year-old knees creak as he squatted beside Eddie May's desk, aiming the bristles of the broom at a spot where dozens of pieces of broken glass should have been. And that's, of course, when he saw the thief's mistake. There wasn't a single shard of glass inside the house. The floor beside Eddie May's desk was bare, covered only by the corner of a hand-woven rug. The glass is on the wrong side, he thought. It was so obvious to him now that he couldn't believe he hadn't realized it before. He couldn't believe the two officers hadn't noticed it either. But hell, they'd given the incident no more than ten minutes of their time. Jay pulled himself upright. He rested one hand on the tip of the broom's handle, taking in the staged scene. If someone had broken in through this window, as Jay had originally thought, the intruder would have kicked the window in raining glass exactly where Jay was standing now. But someone had actually kicked this window from inside the house, pushing the glass out and onto the front porch where Jay had first seen it. Someone wanted him to think that he had come through the front window when all the while the back door had been opened with as much ease as if Jay had unlocked it himself. The window and broken glass were just for show. It was a pointed, if unsophisticated, sleight of hand, and more effort than he imagined the average two-bit crook looking for tools or jewelry or cash for drugs would bother with. It suggested that Jay had walked in on something he didn't as yet understand. He heard a faint thump overhead, the sound of heavy footfall, like the heel of a boot landing on a wood floor. He looked up at the ten ceiling tiles, rows of beveled bronze, and swore he heard it again. The gas lamp in the ceiling was swaying slightly from the weight of whatever was going on upstairs. The light pushing shadows this way and that. Jay felt his breath stop. Someone, he thought, is still in this house. So... Okay, so that, that that's Pleasantville and the beginning of, that's so simple, it's the beginning of something big. It's the beginning of Jay getting involved with um, the life of this missing girl um, while getting tangled up in an, in a, in an election. Um, who was she working for? Which candidate? Um, what happened to her? And what that kind of unveils about some political shenanigans uh, going on in the city. Um, it was cathartic in a lot of ways to write um, personally and then also um, politically in a way. I just, my, my dad's, the reason why my dad's election was painful for me um, there's so many reasons but I'll say this, I think what, what happened to me, I'm not going to give stuff away I'm not going to give stuff away but um, there was a realization that the city was not being served by a vibrant press. That there was, Houston is one of the first cities in the country. The reason why the book is set in 96, Houston is the first major American city to go down to one paper in 95. And so I thought, what was that first election like? When you're trying to guide a democracy with four million people with one paper. And I always felt in 2009 with my dad's election that the lack of a vibrant paper played a part in um, the misunderstandings and frankly lies that were just all kind of stuff. And when I saw it up close, there was a painful feeling of, I remember sitting with my sister in the 
kitchen of my mother's house weeping when I realized that every time I've ever gone in a booth and I thought I was exercising this profound choice, there is a possibility that I was not at all. That if I don't have all the information, that it's an illusion, it's all fake. And that was a devastating blow. And I was probably too old, frankly, to just now figure that out. And yet it, 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 it kind of knocked the wind out of me to, um, to, look at, to see that behind the curtains look at, at politics. It was, it was something. It was something, but I'm happy to engage in a dialogue with you about it. And if you have questions about the book, questions about other books, and Empire. I suppose I'll talk about Empire. I'm going to ask you about Jade. What was, um, I, I love that you brought him back. I can't wait to read this. But what, did you know you wanted to bring him back? So, I was very resistant from the beginning to writing a sequel. Um, there was a, um, when I first of all, when I finished Blackwater Rising and people were like, uh, what happened? <laughs> and I remember one woman wrote me a mad email that she had been listening, listening to it on tape and it was driving around her neighborhood to get to the end and she got to it was like, what? <laughs> she was mad. She was genuinely angry. And I just thought, what are you talking about? I don't, I didn't care whether or not Jay won that court case. To me, at the end of Blackwater Rising, the idea that he would stand up again is all that mattered, his psychological health. So I was done with that book. The thing that happened is that my dad ran for mayor, and I roll into the city, and am riding around, and am going to black churches, and talking to reporters, and union men, and, and oil guys are putting money, and all of a sudden, I'm like, this is Blackwater Rising 30 years later. This is weird. And I was having a hard time with the cutting season. I was this close. I said to Timby a stoplight, maybe this is the second book because the other one's not working out. So if that happened, and then I still tried to find a way to not make it Jay. Then I was like, oh, I'll, I'll, there's, there's that reporter from Blackwater Rising. It'll be, it'll be her book. And my agent was like, eh, uh-huh, yeah. I don't think that people really want that. And I had to face, I had to accept the fact that what I have created in Jay Porter is a man whose life story is a perfect vehicle for dissecting post-civil rights America. It just is. And so if I was going to dip my toe in that with this, he was the man. And I simply had to make peace with that. And I read a couple of books that I feel like gave me permission to do this. One was um, Scott Turow's book, Innocent. So I think you all know Presumed Innocent was this humongous, massive hit. And he wrote that sequel 25 years later. And the character's older. And so when I saw it, that it worked for someone that they weren't trying to recreate. They were letting a man age. That kind of gave me permission. Um, so, And then once I got in it, I was in it. And meeting him here, actually, there's a, a greater level in some ways of intimacy. Because in the first book, he is so much my father in a lot of ways. That here... My dad didn't go on to be an environmental lawyer. My dad's um, not widowed. Um, that was a little bit of a spoiler. but um, So they're not alike, and Jay could really kind of stand. It was my personal relationship with him. It was very, felt very intimate. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Uh, not that much of a spoiler because that's already. It's in there, pretty. Oh, I know people. Yeah, yeah. What can you do? But anyway, I was going to say thank you for the sequel because when I read a book and I really like the character, I close the book and I want to know what happened to him, so I sort of make up something. And it's not nearly as good as what you do. So I'm very glad that, that I found that I'm going to get to find out more about him later. It was a delight, actually. It was it was truly a delight to. Just let somebody age. 
you know, and change. You know, that he's not that trigger-happy guy in the first book. He's not as terrified in the same ways. There are other things that are terrifying him, but but it was nice to be, it felt good to be in that. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about your writing process and mm-hmm. how much time you spend when you, I mean, hours at a time, days at a time? When you, you... Well, there's um, pre-Empire and post-Empire. I mean, but when I wrote this book, I, and then everything is, def- then it's pre-motherhood, post-motherhood. Everything is defined by the fact that I have a child. So, you know, my mornings, hair, cereal, do you have your backpack? Do you have, is this, you know, is it all, your shoes on, you know, that. And then I get her to school, and, and when I wrote this book, I would come home and take a long walk. I live in Mount Washington, so I could kind of walk the hills and puzzle over what I did yesterday, where am I going. Um, and then I would eat a very early lunch, like, I've eaten lunch as early as 10.45, so I don't have to stop. And then I would just eat, work till I had to go pick her up. And then would have to pick up extra time because that's not enough. So I wrote parts of this book, I hope it doesn't show, while the Disney Channel was on. Um, I wrote parts of this book at um, at tennis. I mean, the, the, and you know who my idol is about that? Do you guys know Susan Strait? Susan Strait, who Timby was one of her, I've been inside Sorrow's Kitchen and licked out all the pots. Um, she teaches at UC Riverside. She has been very honest for years about writing in the van at basketball. And that, that's just what she had. And then as her kids got older, this is so funny, she would, as they got into high school, she would be like, oh, I gotta go grocery shopping. Who wants to give me a hand? And the kids were like, nah, we're watching TV. And then she would just stay gone for like three hours <laughs> and just go wherever she felt like going and, and write. So I have learned that I don't have as much of a luxury for my own neuroses anymore because I just I simply don't have the time. Um, my husband is <laughs> probably laughing somewhere, yeah, because he thinks I'm neurotic as I'll get out. But the the fantasy that I'll present to the world is that I'm somehow stronger for having been a mother. That I have to kind of get with it. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Surprised to hear you say that you were in trouble with the cutting season because it's such a. Was starting this one? Think that finally made you wrap that one up? Mm-mm. No, no, I don't know. That book was. Uh, honestly, at that point when I was having troubles, I had written this whole like first hundred pages based on a old book. Do you guys know Alec Wilkinson? He writes for the New Yorker, and he wrote that book about cutting cane in Florida. And I knew the book was dated when I read it, but I kind of took it a little too seriously, and I thought people were still cutting cane by hand. And I get down to Louisiana, they're like, we ain't do that. It's all machines. And I was like, oh, fuck. Well, I came up with this whole setup based on you're out in the field with the thing. And so I was devastated when I rolled into Houston because I was like, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. And then the cutting season just continued to have problems. And part of the problem is that my editor, um, God bless her, because she has been profoundly supportive, but she never asked me what my second book was going to be. And I think she assumed it was a sequel, and it, and it wasn't. And when she read The Cutting, cutting Season, she was like, what the hell, what is this? I, I don't know what this is. Um, and so it just took a lot of, there were a lot of, there were, it was a long ride with that one. Very long ride. Anybody else? Yes, sir. So if you have, like, if you're talking about three as if they're all... You know, one and do you have other do you know what's next? Mm-mm. 
Nope, not at all. Um, that's really hard to say. It's the first time in my life there wasn't a book going, pay attention to me. Um, no, I have absolutely no idea. I wish I had a better answer. I have thoughts. I have a fantasy about writing a book about L.A. I'm very scared to do that because I'm not from here, and I just feel like I don't want to get that wrong. Um, I always have ideas. It's just none is like saying I, it has to come out right now. So I'm just kind of hanging out for a minute and filling up. Yeah. But yes, ma'am. Uh, how, how's it different to you writing a novel and writing a a screenplay or a TV show, either. Uh, both. Um, both <laughs> the no the novel and the screenplay can kind of sort of look similar because you're doing it kind of by yourself in your own time. The profound difference is that this is for people who like to read, and the script is always simply a means to. If you make it read well, that's just a bonus, but no one's going to pat you on the back for your fantastic turn of phrase on page 20. They, it's not what it's meant to do. It's meant to galvanize excitement and energy for costume designers and lighting technicians. That's its point. So um, what's delightful about that is I like writing drama. I like... I call it the white space on the page, and I try to bring white space with me to novels, figuratively, meaning... In a novel, I could explain everything. I try not to. Um, I try to leave, specifically in scenes with two people talking, every line of dialogue does not have to be explained. That you can, the book can live in the white space. So I try to bring that with me. Um, the TV show is just a completely different animal that I did not understand a year ago at all. And once I, because I never did team sports, I never, I just, I've never, I didn't understand how you put all people in a room, what? And you all write, I didn't get it. But then over the course of our first season together, it became kind of really clear to me that we were better as a whole than anybody was individually. And that was fun to see. That was a lot of fun to see. But you're, you know, throwing ideas off of you. You go off and write the script by yourself, but it is so profoundly collaborative that it almost exists in a world kind of by itself, kind of completely by itself. They're all fun. They're all just very, very, very different. And they all, I think, allow different things for me. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Were you writing um, your novels at the same time that you were working on the show? Yeah, what happened is I finished this book, and then I thought, oh, um, I thought a lot of things that led me to him. There are a lot of different steps that led me there. But this was pretty much done. I had some copy editing. I had some changes to make, but it was pretty much done. And I'm thankful for that because I think of this book as being um, ambitious, and I don't think I could have done it. Well, I, I could, no, I, there's no way. There's no way. Yeah. Jaleesa? How do you uh, get yourself through the moments where you're just like, I'm fraud, I'm not going to write, it's going to be terrible, what I'm writing is going to be... Shut up, Carl. <laughs> How do you get through those moments? He's beat red. I mean, come on. Um, I I do have a very good therapist. I I, I make no. I, I thanked her in literally every book. None of them would exist without her. So um, I have a very good therapist, and also the advice I give to people, and I try to take it myself, 
is to remind myself that my my love is bigger than a moment. My love of writing is bigger than a moment. So that if I have a moment where it's not fun, if that one moment is enough to take me out, then I probably don't need to be doing this. But so you kind of just have to push. I don't have so much that I feel like a fraud. I just worry something nobody cares. Like my big fear is that it's not good. Like just nobody gives a shit about this kind of stuff. Um, that I'm the only one who cares. A, which is usually the sign you should be writing that if you're the one who's most passionate about it. But um, my bigger concerns are just it's just not good. It's just that you know I. You know, I've been very good with my kid. My, I have a daughter. So I've been very, she's never ever heard me say anything about my body. She's never heard me say anything about my looks. But she has heard me kvetch about not feeling like a good writer. That's embarrassing. I'm embarrassed to admit that. Because um, I've heard her repeat it back. Like, I've heard her repeat it back about stuff that she's doing that's not good enough. So I have to kind of watch, watch that. But the main thing is support, soldier through. And also... I used to think that if I was afraid, that meant I couldn't write. Now I know I'm just afraid. It's just an emotion. It, it's not a. It's not a diagnosis. It's nothing but an emotion. And just even being able to observe that and verbalize that can kind of diminish the fear. I'm afraid every time, every single time I feel fear, and I now realize it's just kind of a part of the thing. It's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Um. I've waited to become 56 and become your groupie at the I love, I love the way you write. Oh, thank you. Um, and I think that one of the things as an African American, the history that you put in your books really adds to um, the richness of the story. I, uh, I, I read a history that was talking about um, rice in South Carolina, but didn't talk at all about the slaves, and I was like, how are you going to leave the slaves out when that is happening? Right, you know? right, and so, right. <laughs> the cutting season and the, and the history around Karen's family was, was wonderful. I didn't like her as much as I liked Jay, and I wanted to know your thoughts about, do you have a preference in... You know, but I will tell you what is an interesting social observation... Black women tell me that a lot. White women love her. They love her. It's the oddest thing. And I think I get it, but I don't quite get it. I think I get it because I think in black women in particular feel that she's standoffish. And that was the point I was trying to make, that she was caught in being... Her job required her to not to be caught between the masters, so to speak, of the plantation and the workers. And that being stuck in that middle was uncomfortable for her. But there are readers who have said they didn't like it either, that they just didn't feel... And I think for... Please, I'm not a sociologist. I'm just, you know, take all this with a grain of salt. I think that what I've heard when I hear white women talk about hers, there's something about everything that she's juggling. I don't know if they're able to strip the race out of it, and all they see is the motherhood... The broken relationship, you, you're trying to run a crew of people. I don't, I don't know. It's just an observation around the country that I've noticed. But I do not have a preference. I mean, they both feel like family members of me. I mean, I, I'll stand up for Karen all day long. But I, it's okay to me if people don't, you know, don't feel that. That was kind of the point for me that she is not beloved because of her position on the plantation. That there was a sadness and a loneliness in that. 
So I actually feel kind of sorry for her a little bit. Well, you, uh, you did feel sorry, but you root for Jay at the end. You're like, I hope that, you know, what's happening with Jay? Mm-hmm. And Karen, if there's something that... Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I'll take it. I'll totally, I'll, I'll totally take it. I, um... But I personally, the, the the question being, do I love one more than the other? And that why you like one better? <laughs> no, no, I don't like one more than the other. They're just they're just different. And they they're just different. Yeah, but I love her. She she's her deep ambivalence about race and all that stuff. A lot of her stuff and the class dynamics feel very um, of my life, of my family's life. I mean, we're kind of how many generations straight, middle class, black Americans, so I have felt my own sense of discomfort that I don't have anything in common with a kid in Compton. I felt my own discomfort about that, and so in a way I was trying to have her reflect, you know, some of that. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. So, um, I too part of the Anne <laughs> 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 um, and just them so the characters and the writing so disciplined. It's you're seeing so disciplined because there's so much potency on every page. Um, and so I just am in awe of you all. Made. Oh, that's sweet, um, Sydney. Was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your experiences in Pleasantville and maybe some of those moments that also informed, you know, the book. Um, because how you started was so. You know, that was one of the last, very last things I wrote. I was terrified because the opening wasn't working and everybody said it wasn't working. And so to start a book over, like even though I knew the rest of the book was fine, but I knew just a new opening line is like giving somebody a new birth date or a new name. It was, uh, so I, I appreciate that. And I like the opening very much. Basically my experience was that one day. And then I went back that one day where I was like, what is going on here? You know, that we're in this chipped linoleum community center and everybody is lining up to get these people to vote for them. I was just fascinated by that. And then once that pebble, I, I have to say, I knew when, when my dad was running, I knew within like 48 hours of being in Houston that I was going to write a book about it and that there would be a block walker who went missing. Um, We all, my siblings here, we all block walked for my dad. And I remember doing it like by myself. We would split up thinking, I don't, I'm in a strange neighborhood just walking around, but I have a phone. And what in the world was it like to do this as a woman before, you know, cell phones? And so I kind of knew that immediately. And then just over, you know, like the next Christmas I was home, I kind of went back to Pleasantville. And I eventually did sit down with um, like five of the elders in the community. Um, um, so the, the neighborhood was founded by two Jewish developers who came up with this idea themselves that they were going to do something that had never been done. And so I met with some of the first families. I mean, and they're frankly all uh, you know passing away. Um, and I sat down and had um, coffee, and um, they had printed up a little spiral notebook of the history that they had just made on their own. And we talked, and they told stories, and it was both... I was on fire to get all of it down, but then I also felt terrified that I was going to let these people down because one guy, Mr. Talmud Sharp, looked at me and said, you get it right. And I was just like... Because I don't want to 
don't tell him I'm just gonna bend this however I need to bend. I don't want to say that to him, but but they were very kind and open about their feelings and um and that that was pretty much it. You know, the rest of it was um again every time I went home for a holiday, a wedding, go to Pleasantville. Um ish. I mean the tr- the truth of the matter is it's beginning to fall apart. Pleasantville to me is a litmus test for the whole of changes in America from after the Second World War because it is a picture of Jim Crow, the best you could get out of Jim Crow, which was concentrated black wealth, concentrated black culture, black voting power. And then with integration, it just began to fray. And so that in younger black people, yeah, that sounds good, but this neighbor is actually like 15 minutes from my job at Exxon over there. I'll just move into a new suburb. There are no deed restrictions anymore. You know, I can live anywhere. And then there were even people, when they were trying to pass it to their children, the children wouldn't do anything with it. They would let it sit. And then young Latino families start coming in. So this is now their piece of the American dream. So you have the old guard, and I'm going to call them out. You have the old guard who are very much like, hmm, those new ones that are coming in. I'll just admit it. You know, there, there were black folks out there that had some stuff to say about young Latino families coming in. And so it was just, it's just an interesting pocket to look at um, what had once been this, and pleasant, but you have to understand, like, back in the day, Dinah Washington, Joe Lewis, Louis Armstrong, they would all come through Pleasantville because they couldn't stay downtown in Houston. And so they would call, you know, a family there and be put up. So it was just a sterling place. And if you, if you drove through it now, you can't see that history. It's just you can't even see it with your eyes. That's why I had to have somebody explain it to me. Uh, and then once somebody did, I was in. I was all in. I was just fascinated by, by all of it. Anybody else before I start signing books? Yes, ma'am. Can you talk a little bit about um, who you read while you're writing, if you read anyone who you're reading now? I have a... I'm reading Housefrau. Anybody is reading that? I'm reading Housefrau. Um, I just had to, I used, I've gotten better. I used to not be able to read fiction while I wrote. And I now am, can do that. I'm, I'm much better at it. And I kind of, I read everything. I don't have a real, I don't actually read mysteries that much, but I do read some crime noir stuff. I read some nonfiction. I kind of read um, everything. I can sometimes tell myself I want a fluff book, but I never get through them. I, I tell myself that a lot, that I think the stimulation of being challenged is too attractive to me. But, um, but I kind of read everything. I kind of read everything. We have a little Empire Book Club going on. <laughs> yeah, we share books a lot. Anybody else? Like one or two more? Anybody? Yes, ma'am. You were in France. I was. So they were so much different. I went to a book festival in Lyon, and the whole festival was for crime writers. It was like 60,000 people come to this festival from around the world. I had never seen anything quite like it. So they were at... I think what shocked me most about France was not... The questions were similar. Was their kind of disinterest in the cutting season. I was... Now, it might have been a price point. Let's get honest. I mean, they had a little paperback of Blackwater Rising that was so many euro and then this other big thing. But I was just shocked at... I thought, you know, Louisiana, you know, French settlers, they're going to, nope. I, I sold, like, I don't know how many, over 100, whatever, Blackwater Rising. I maybe sold 15 of the cutting season when I was sitting at this festival. I was kind of shocked by 
that little bit of Americana did not interest them at all. It was weird. It was kind of weird. But anybody? Yes, ma'am. Lovely to see your face. Do you ever feel, or how do you deal with pressure from, from adults within the black community portraying black Uh, you know, I didn't really have it this bad till Empire. I mean, nobody really, the, nobody complained about my books like that. Um, my feeling on it is, this is what I saw when the first Twitter stuff started coming out, when Empire started coming. What I heard, what I heard from black people was pure suspicion. This is a Trojan horse. This is Fox News. This is, don't trust this. And I think that we, I said this on the radio, I think that black folks have been conditioned for so long to solely talk about visibility, just are we just visible on screen, that there's almost like, it's almost like we've got to learn how to flex a muscle to learn how to engage with ourselves at the level of art, where people are lying sometimes, great sometimes. And so I basically, I certainly don't engage on Twitter. I've made that mistake before and it's awful to kind of get into like a Twitter beef with people. I try to eloquently restate my feeling that um, what I'm most interested in doing in my life as a writer, be it for screen or books, is to, I almost hate to use this language, normalize black life. But I want, I remember when they were trying to write this copy and they said something like Jay goes into a minority neighbor I said nope do not other blackness no he just goes into a neighborhood that this is American history this is not so in my lifetime that that black people's lives um, are presented in such a way that are full and complex and rich and that we moved out of you know the needing to portray perfect Negroes um, that that you know what that also does too. Um, here's the thing about Selma and the Butler, and I, God love all of these movies, and we need every single one of them. But if everything is Twelve Years a Slave, and everything is the Butler, and everything is Selma, you are reinforcing the idea that we are somehow superhuman. You know there are there are studies that they did with doctors that that doctors sometimes think black people don't feel as much pain. And if our media is consistently saying that we can get our asses kicked and get up singing a hymn, then you're just suggesting that we're not human. And so I'm willing to hang out in the muckety-muck of, of humanity. And it can have some guns, and it can have a church scene, it can have all that. But if I'm engaged on a human level, I'm happy to push back and debate. It's hard to react to articles and this, that, and the other, but I'm on a different, I'm in a different lane, and I'm just going to stay in that lane. So, all right, you guys. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.